You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. Now, if you guys haven't had the opportunity to check out the Navigator Series, it's a brand new lineup from Lacrosse. They have the Windrows for men and women. They also have the Atlas, and that's what I wore during my rut vacation this fall. Check them out. They're very comfortable. Uh, it's a traditional rubber boot kind of mixed with a traditional hunting hiking boot they've mashed it together and the outcome is the navigator series check it out at lacrossefootwear.com hello and welcome to another episode of the ohio huntsman podcast so this week is part two of our conversation on h2 ohio so last week if you did if you missed that episode that was jacob jeff and i talking about the information that we've been able to find online, any of the, the public news releases, that sort of thing, on the H2 Ohio initiative. And then this week, we, br- we brought in an expert. So we've got Scott Butterworth from the ODNR to talk about H2 Ohio with us. And so we get deeper into the details, some of the details on some of the projects that they have planned, some of the timelines uh, uh, on when we should expect to see some of those projects happening. Um, we also talk about how and and some of the thought that went behind some of these projects and how they're going to control the the floodwaters and how they're going to restore some of these marshes and and things like that. So it was a really interesting conversation. I, I, I really think you guys are going to enjoy it. We enjoyed talking to Scott, and we cover a lot in this one. So there's a ton of information, but before we get into that, I want to talk about our sponsor, Mastin's Deer Sense. So Mastin's is a premium scent product company at a non-premium price. They make great scent products. They've got your standard liquid scent, but they've also got scented gel crystals. They've got scented candles, so like deer-scented candles or apple scented candles and then those candles can be used in their double scent stacker which is basically like an aluminum cylinder and you would put one of these candles one of these deer scented candles down in it then on top there's a tray you put a liquid scent in the scented candle heats that scent helps to dissipate it and you've got the scent from the candle so hence the double scent stacker allows you to layer scents and get you know what I would call a more realistic scent profile because it's not just a single overpowering scent. So if that's something that you like, if scent is something that you use or something that you want to try, I encourage you to check them out. There'll be a link in the show notes on how to get in touch with them and order their product. 
basically just go to their website, mastinsearsense.com, and order, and they ship it right to your house. And with that, let's get into the conversation with Scott. Welcome to the Ohio Huntsman Podcast, where three brothers, Jason, Jacob, and Jeff, discuss all things hunting in Ohio. Our goal is to be your source for accurate and reliable hunting news and conservation issues in the great state of Ohio, as well as some fun and interesting conversations along the way. This is the Ohio Huntsman Podcast. Are you listening? Okay, so today on the show, we've got Scott Butterworth from the ODNR. And this is going to be, uh, I guess, part two. So, so Scott, the three of us, um, Jacob, Jeff, and I have had sort of a conversation just based on the information that is, you know, publicly available on the on the website, which we'll link to the website in the show notes. It's h two the number two dot ohio dot gov. Correct. Gives a ton of information on this. We'll put it in the link or in the show notes for people if you if you can't remember that short little URL. But we've kind of gone through that and given some of our our um, layperson opinions on on what this might mean and and what me, what people might expect to see. And so now we're this is kind of going to kind of be part two of this conversation where. We actually have somebody that <laughs> knows what they're talking about. <laughs> okay. And uh, no pressure there. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, <laughs> if you could, um, kind of introduce yourself. Uh, you know what you do with the with the DNR and and give us a little bit of your background. And okay. Um, S- Scott Butterworth. I am the district manager for the Division of Wildlife in Wildlife District 2, which is 20 counties in Northwest Ohio. So basically we go from Richland County over to Van Wert, and then from Richland County up to Erie, and then into the corner of the state that borders Michigan and Indiana. So I've been with the Division of Wildlife for 22 years, uh, all up in District 2, I started in the wildlife management section as an assistant wildlife management supervisor, and I supervised uh, two work units, Kildare Plains and Lake La Suan, and then I became the wildlife management supervisor, so I was responsible for all the wildlife management activities and the wildlife areas that are located in northwest Ohio, and then about seven years ago, I became uh district manager. So my educational background is I received a bachelor's in wildlife science from Penn State University and also a master's in wildlife management from Penn State. And then I actually worked for nine and a half years in West Virginia for their wildlife resources agency before my family and I moved here to Ohio. Okay. So now, like like we've said, this is going to be an episode on the mm-hmm. the new H two Ohio initiative. So, if you could give us a, uh, I guess what I'd call a high level summary of what H two Ohio is for people that that don't know. Okay, H two Ohio is a program that Governor DeWine initiated that is basically going to improve water quality throughout the state of Ohio. It's going to concentrate 
in Lake Erie and the Lake Erie drainage, but is going to uh, look at ways to improve water quality across the state and use a variety of different, uh, there's three agents, state agencies involved, the Ohio Environmental Protection Agency, the Ohio Department of Agriculture, and the Ohio Department of Natural Resources all working together with lots of other partners um, to improve water quality across the state. Okay. So basically from from what we've seen, some of the ways that you know we're we're a, a sportsman's podcast, a hunting podcast. Mm-hmm. And so some of the things that we've seen and are interested in, I guess, are some of the ways you guys are looking at doing this is restoring some wetland habitat, some of that marsh habitat that helps filter out some of the the phosphorus runoff that that causes some some of these harmful algal blooms and things like that. So if you could, I guess what what changes are should people expect to see here in the near future? Well, I would say one one of the uh, techniques that the Department of Natural Resources is going to use is wetland development and also reconnecting current wetlands to different, you know, could be rivers, ditches, or the lake itself. So whenever we talk about wetland creation, we're basically going to be taking land that is most likely agricultural in nature and then putting a wetland back on in on that land. And we do that by looking at the soils primarily. So we need what we call hydric soils or soils that will hold water and not let it um, percolate through. And we can put take that soil, which is usually a clay-based soil, and we can build um, earthen berms to hold water. And there's several ways that, that uh, we can do that. Um, the easiest is through what we call water control structures, where we can control water levels. And we can take current um, drainage tile in farm fields and run that into the wetland and have the water be filtered through the wetland plants before it's released back into a, a ditch or a stream. We can also take water out of a current ditch or a stream and pump it into a wetland and then have the wetland filter it before we release it back into that waterway. And, um, you know, obviously that's going to create wetland habitat that's good for a a lot of for waterfowl, but also shorebirds and other migratory birds, uh, fur bears, and uh, a whole host of other wetland wildlife. And when we talk about reconnection projects, these are taking current wetlands and basically reconnecting them to a body of water so that the water can um, flow through the wetland or flow into the wetland and be filtered that way. And that provides uh, a number of benefits in addition to the water quality improvements, but a lot of our fish species have lost spawning habitat, particularly up along the lake. Um, We talk about northern pike in particular. They like vegetation to spawn in. And a lot of that is missing up along the lake now. So by reconnecting these wetlands to the lake and uh, 
The water control structures are designed to allow fish passage in there at certain times of the year. So these pike and other species can go up in there and spawn and then return to the lake or stay in the wetland for a time. And um, so hopefully we get some better productivity of some of those species. Uh, we, we also know that we need to keep species like common carp out. So we can do that by either closing the water control structure or we will um, put gates on there to keep the larger carp out so that they cannot get into the wetland and and destroy the vegetation. So we, we look at water temperatures and times of the years and uh, water flow and things like that so that we can allow the, uh, the structures to be open or closed to allow that fish passage at certain times of the year. Okay, so that's okay. interesting. So the the water control structures, what uh, I guess, can you sort of try and paint a picture of what in an audio uh, format of of what these things might look like or how they might function? Sure. Um, basically, a water control structure is can be a cut through a dike in a wetland, and it may have grates or what we call um, logs that we can put in there and basically they're, they're solid pieces of metal or some type of material that block the flow of water. And we can put logs in to raise the water level in the wetland or lower them um, depending on the wetland itself, say if it has a pump that pumps water in, we can put a certain number of logs or boards in that sets that water height. And as we pump water in, when it reaches a certain height, it'll flow actually flow out of the wetland. So the water can be pumped in, say at one end of the wetland, flow through the wetland, and then go through this water control structure and flow out after it has, has been treated by the wetland plants. Um, as I said, some of them like up along Lake Erie are actually right at the lake level. These are more like a channel or potentially a pipe. Um, some of the fish species don't like to go through a pipe, so other ones like it to be open to the like it to be open so they don't have a cover over them. So they can be made out of um, what's called sheet piling, which is basically big pieces of steel that you drive down into the earth. And you basically just create a, a channel for the fish to swim in and out out there to get into the wetlands. So the way, I guess, to take a step back, the way the, the wetlands work is it's, it one, it slows the flow of water down, right? And then uh, I guess a healthy wetlands, the way it should work, right? It, it slows water flow down and the the plants then soak up some of that that nutrient runoff is that sort of the idea correct yeah if you think oftentimes people refer to wetlands as nature's kidneys they process that water they take out contaminants um, they give an area for like flood waters to go into and to spread out and to, by slowing down the flow of that water sediment will drop out into the wetland and then the plants will absorb the nutrients and uh, as they grow and, and use them that way, 
And also the soils, some of the soils in the wetland themselves can actually bind with some of the nutrients and, and hold them in the wetland then. Okay. All right. So that makes makes good sense. That sounds like a, a, a well-thought-out plan. I, I'm always... I don't know what the word is, but I'm, I'm always interested or intrigued, I guess, by the amount of thought and things that go into this, right? Things that I would never even think of, right? The, the you know, how you talked about how there's ways for the fish to get in through these water control structures and things like that. That's just something that, you know, I don't fish a lot, ad- admittedly, you know, and so those are things that I don't think of, right? And so I'm glad that there's people like you guys thinking through this stuff. And anytime we have these conversations, I'm always amazed. Maybe amazed isn't the right word, but you know, you, you get what I'm saying. There, there's a lot of thought and and detail that goes into something like this because there's a lot of factors, right? The, the natural world is a is a complex and connected thing. Definitely. And you know, it, ha- it hasn't always been that way, you know, just in the wildlife profession either. It's taken um, time. Uh, you know, you think historically, particularly up along Lake Erie, some of these wetlands have been in place there for over 100 years. They originally designed as duck hunting clubs or even some of them in the early years, they were designed specifically to raise muskrats for, for their fur. And... You know, at that time, they didn't think anything about fish passage or anything like that. So it's taken a number of years. We're continually learning on how to manage these areas better and to, to benefit more species. And, um, you know, just like when I mentioned about the fish passage, you know, some fish, they don't want to swim through a tube. Other ones will. It doesn't seem to bother them. Other ones, you know, they have to have an open sky and or certain uh, with passage before they'll they'll move through in any numbers. So we're continually learning uh, how to manage the wetlands better. And as you said, every year the the weather's a little bit different. So there's it's not like you have a a cookbook there that you can do everything the same year after year after year because you always get more or less precipitation and temperature and all those things factor in how you manage the wetlands on an annual basis. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned there, uh, you touched on it briefly about, you know, other species and things. And, and one of the things that I've read in the plan is, uh, using buffer strips and, you know, controlling water flow into like farm ditches and things like that. Mm -hmm. So is there, or has there been thought put into, maybe what I would call like a secondary benefit of those being good, um, you know, like upland bird habitat, right? That That's sort of the complaint of a lot of the, uh, or maybe the downfall of a lot of the upland bird species is like the edge to edge farming. There's, you know, everything's very clean and, and, you know, there's not the messy fence rows and things anymore. And, you know, that's at least what I've heard been right. detrimental to some of the upland bird species. And so my thought being, these buffer strips and, and, you know, kind of overgrown ditches and things like that. And, and, you know, river corridors would be good upland bird habitat. Is that, is that something that you guys have thought about or am I, you know, even on the right track with that? 
Oh, definitely. Um, you know, we have currently the with the U.S. Department of Agriculture, we have the Scioto River Conservation Reserve Enhancement Program, which is about 70,000 acres. And this has been in place for 20 years now. And what that did was something similar, took a lot of the areas along the Scioto River that were in the 100-year floodplain and turned them into um, you know, a lot of warm season grasses and things like that. And anybody that hunts down along there knows that we actually have a wild population of pheasants down along there. So okay, it's, it's important to keep what we already have on the landscape and not, not lose that, but also establish these new areas. And, um, you know, hopefully we can get some, uh, potentially some pheasant populations in other parts of the state where we can have these buffer strips that are connected to one another in, in a, a relatively small area, but also, like you said, just grassland birds in general across the country, their populations have really declined and that would be beneficial, but it also benefits things like rabbits. You know, we know deer will use them to move as corridors, um, fur bears, all those different species. Basically, they'll they'll use those different habitats from from time to time as they move from place to place. So it's a uh, it's definitely a benefit to the vast majority of wildlife species to have that cover on the landscape. Sure. So some of the other things that I I read about in this, you know, we mentioned the the buffer strips. I read some other things on fertilizing of farm fields, and so doing like targeted fertilizer application, doing subsurface fertilization, a lot of different sort of, I guess what I, and maybe it's not new tech, but you know, it's maybe not been widely adopted yet. Um, you know, some of these new technologies, if you will, in farming practices, how are you incentivizing farmers to use? Cause I, I also read that none of this stuff is is mandatory is that right it's all you know it's all on a volunteer basis for farmers that's correct it's all voluntary so how are you incentivizing people you know farmers throughout the state or particularly in that northwest zone to adopt some of these uh what we'll call best practices well, we're actually still in conversations with the Ohio Department of Agriculture. Um, for H2 Ohio, as I mentioned, there, there were three agencies that received funding. Um, the Ohio Environmental Protection Agency, and they're going to use their funding for um, helping with failing uh, septic systems in areas, also uh, lead in pipes for um, certain high-risk daycares and things like that, the Ohio Department of Agriculture, um, you know, dealing with the agricultural community is really their area of expertise. Okay. So we are talking with them. Um, you know, we work closely with them a lot on the U.S. Department of Agriculture Farm Bill programs, which have done a lot of conservation practices. So we're still talking with them, but, um, you know, looking at some of these um, variable rate fertilizers, it's it's cost effective for the farmer to do it because instead of putting a constant rate of fertilizer over all of their land, 
these new variable rates looking from the results of soil tests and the equipment is computerized to GIS systems. It varies the rate of fertilizer depending on what the soil tests show. Where it needs fertilizer, it'll add it, but where it doesn't need the fertilizer, it basically doesn't put it down. So hopefully in the long run, what they'll do is you use less fertilizer, but use the right amount that they need to get the, their crops to grow properly. So that's one of the big um, areas of the program. And it may be things like cost sharing the equipment to apply it. Um, the other thing is instead of just spreading the fertilizer on the soil surface is to incorporate it into the soil so that it, if we get a hard rain or a snowfall and it melts, it just doesn't wash that fertilizer off, that it's already incorporated down into the soil and it's less likely to be washed off into different waterways. So all those different techniques are things that, um, you know, we're working with the Ohio Department of Agriculture to to figure out the best ways to get them implemented. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, from what I've read, a lot of this stuff, uh, new things that are going on in this program seem to be targeted towards the, uh, the Northwest corridor of the state. Is there going to be plans, future phases to, uh, implement similar things throughout the rest of the state? Yes, we've kind of, um, um, as I said, the, the program just started this summer, and right now uh, the governor has proposed it be a, to be a 10-year program, but the way the state budget works is they only pass the state budget for two years at a time. So the governor received $172 million from the legislature over that two-year period. So because of the uh, – we're emphasizing Lake Erie – because of some of the harmful algal blooms up there. But unfortunately, we've seen those across the state in both large and small reservoirs, even the Ohio rivers had them. So um, we've kind of divided up the projects into three groups. We have ones that we call coastal projects that are on the western, basically shoreline of Lake Erie. Then we have inland projects that are in primarily the Maumee and the Sandusky River drainages. And then we have statewide projects that basically will be into the, the Ohio River watershed. So um, the other reason is we're concentrating up in Northwest Ohio more as um, a large portion of this area is, is agriculture. So there is more um, runoff and things like that from the agriculture than what we get in other parts of the state where we may have more forested portions and things like that. So we're concentrating a little more up in that watershed for for Lake Erie to try and, and uh, get some of the harmful algal blooms up there, get, the, get those to reduce. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another question. Um, when can people expect to really see these new wetlands being developed? You know, when can they actually expect to see boots on the ground with some of these projects? Uh, we're hoping to get these projects up and running um, this next construction season. So hopefully this coming spring or summer. Um, our goal from Director Mertz is to have 
all of the, the contracts for the 23 projects that we have right now completed by the end of this month. And then we'll be working with our different partners to get the engineering and design, and it'll be up to them to get the, uh, you know, the construction companies all lined up and hopefully we'll be moving these projects along here, uh, as I said, beginning this spring. If y'all are looking for a way to fill those last couple deer tags or sort of fill out the freezer for the year, I encourage you to check out Monster Whitetail Grub. They're a sponsor of this show and they make a really good deer feed product. So they make a high protein feed. It's got mineral mixed in and this late part of the season, deer are back on that search for calories, right? They, they need the calories. They, you know, the, the winter months are tough. And so they're looking for high quality food sources. And when they find those, something like monster whitetail grub, you can pretty well bet they're going to keep coming back until that, that food source is gone. So if you're looking for a way to get deer on a pattern so you can fill some of those last tags, check out Monster Whitetail Grub. There'll be a link in the show notes and get in touch with them and try some of their stuff. And with that, let's get back to the episode. So you you said, what, what was it, 27 projects? 23 right now. 23 we 23 yep. projects. Okay. Um, now I noticed, uh, at somewhere I found a, an H2 Ohio one pager and it's got six, what, what they're calling priority wetland projects. Mm, Are you yes. familiar with this document? Yes. Um, so are, would those be the, the coastal, cause you mentioned coastal inland, um, would those be the coastal or a mix of the coastal and inland projects in that Maumee Lake Erie watershed area? Yeah, that's a mix. And that's um, Director Mertz had a rollout of the H2 Ohio program up in Maumee Bay State Park on November 21st. And she highlighted those six projects. Um, two of them are at the mouth of the Maumee River. There's the Collin Park Wetland, which is right near the, the mouth. And that's basically going to uh, take an embayment near Collin Park and redirect some of the flow of the Maumee River through a wetland. And the other one's known as Grassy Island. It's out kind of where the mouth of Lake Erie and Lake Erie, or excuse me, the mouth of the Maumee River and Lake Erie meet. And again, that's going to be a wetland complex where hopefully we'll be able to divert some of the water from the Maumee River to go through that wetland. Um, another one is over at Maumee Bay State Park. They currently have a wetland there, but whenever it was built, um, the berm along Lake Erie was just made out of rock, so water can flow in and out there, and they haven't been able to control the water level. So what's happened is um, Phragmites, which is an invasive speedy species, has taken over the wetland. So what, what that project's going to do is basically build an earthen berm behind the current rock berm, and it will also put a water control structure in it to allow water to flow in from the lake. And there's also a, a, um, a ditch on the east side of that property that we can pump water out of to filter it through the wetland before it goes into the lake. And then there's a project with Metro Parks Toledo, where uh, they're going to 
purchase a piece of property and restore it along AI Creek. And um, so they're going to create some new wetlands uh, in the floodplain and also plant trees on that piece of property. And then we're doing some projects with the Black Swamp Conservancy. And one of those is in Paulding County. And it's going to basically, there's a, a current ditch that we're going to put some wetlands on and it's been, been eroded down there where it enters the Maumee River. We're going to do some work to restore that and to prevent the erosion from creating any more problems on that part of the, the creek. And then there's also a uh, piece of property they have over near the Sandusky River along near Fremont and it's currently being farmed and we're going to on that property we're going to put some wetlands and there's two two ditches that run through it that uh, we're going to have those enter into the wetland before they go into the Sandusky River so those were the six projects that the director highlighted in her rollout and th those are ones that um, you know we're close to get getting started on on all of them so hopefully those are some of the ones that will be completed here in the near future okay so i heard you mention on on one of those that you're going to be purchasing some some land to make that happen are these a combination of existing um state-owned land that you're making improvements to existing wetlands and possibly purchasing new land to implement something or, or how does that like the land ownership of these projects break down? Uh, we, we have a number of different partners on them. Some of them um, are going to be on current state properties like there, Mommy Bay State Park. And we're also planning to hopefully do one on the McGee Marsh Wildlife Area and also some with Ottawa National Wildlife Refuge. And then the one I mentioned was with Metro Parks Toledo and that's a piece of property that they are going to purchase. And then some of the other ones, like the ones with the Black Swamp Conservancy, they currently own those, those properties. Um, and then we're also looking at doing some on private land also. So it will be a, a mixed. It's kind of opportunity driven. If there's a, you know, a landowner, whether they're private or public, that's interested in doing a project and that we can get it to meet the nutrient reduction goal for H2 Ohio. We will, uh, you know, look at that project and and then rank it with all the other ones that we have. Okay. So another thing that you mentioned that you couldn't see because, you know, it's audio only, but I, I, I flinched a little bit, I tensed a little bit, as you mentioned, Phragmites, and I, I've actually been battling. Um, I seem to have a track record of, living in places that have invasive species. So I have Phragmites in my backyard here. There's a kind of a, a low-lying area, and I've been battling that. The, the last place I lived had had uh, Japanese knotweed and, mm -hmm. and uh, Tree of Heaven. <sighs> and so yeah. it, the, the Phragmites, are you trying to get rid of that, or you're, you're just building the marshland around that, or, or what's your strategy with dealing with the Phragmites? No, our strategy would be to, to try and eliminate it as much as possible. And, you know, when that proj project is done, hopefully by having water control ability, 
You know, we can use either chemical means or mechanical means or even burning it and, you know, try and get it knocked down or killed and then use uh, water levels to to kill it. And then also trying to encourage the natural wetland vegetation to come back and compete with it and hopefully outcompete it so that it can't can't reestablish itself. But, yeah, invasive species are definitely a big battle. Um whether it's wetlands or uplands or anywhere, unfortunately, I don't think there's any place you can go now and, and uh, be free of them. Yeah. So this is, you weren't prepared for this question, but maybe you have some idea. Do, do you guys know how much, like how much resources or, or money or things that you, you allocate toward dealing with invasive species throughout the state or maybe just in your district, if you, if you know? Oh, I'm sure that statewide, just the Division of Wildlife, we dedicate tens of thousands of dollars to invasive species control. Okay. I, I mean, I don't know. I I own a, a couple acres here, and I, you know, I'm trying to do my part, but man, it's like <laughs> you think you got it knocked back, and then it comes back, and it's like it's in just an ongoing uh um battle of mine i don't know it's it's one of those like personal pet peeves i have of you yeah. know, just like trying to get rid of this stuff and it i just you know it's an ongoing like ah this stuff <laughs> yeah yeah you turn your back on it and it, it's right back there again so. yeah 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 be more persistent than it is yeah okay so the could you run through sort of like you did here on these priority projects you know you mentioned there's 23 projects total could you could you run through a few you know maybe touch on a key a few other key projects in other parts of the state if you would sure um one of the projects that um you know we we hope to to get finalized here is with the hancock county park district um they have the tract of property that they purchased, it's, it was a farm field, um, but there is uh, what's known as Aaron Run goes through part of it. So on that parcel, we're gonna re- going to create some wetlands. Um, and also one of their plans is to do some um, upland habitat with warm season grass and pollinator habitat. So that project altogether will probably be about um, 100 acres. So we'll have over 40 acres of wetland on that project. And then also, we'll, as I said, we'll create some good upland habitat and some pollinator habitat. So that's an important when I talk about pollinator habitat. That's what we're talking about. Honeybees and monarch butterflies and all those uh, pollinators that we rely on for pollinating plants. So we, we're working with the, them to do that project. Sure. Um, we're also working with the uh, Crawford County Park District. Uh, again, they have a, a piece of property that they own along a creek that um, going to create some temporary wetland, wetlands there whenever the creek floods to... Um, Again, just hold some water and filter it out and act as some some, uh, nutrient reduction in that water. And then we're working with a number of private wetlands up along Lake Erie. And I think it's important for people to understand, you know, if we go back before Ohio was settled, 
Uh, we had what was known as the Great Black Swamps, which was in, in western Lake Erie, but over near the areas of Oak Harbor and the city of Oregon. And that stretched kind of from that area all the way down in a northwest or southwest direction, all the way over to the state of Indiana. It was over 300,000 acres. And as Lake Erie levels have changed historically, you know, whenever the water levels would go up, those wetlands would flow inland as water moved in. And then as the lake went down, they would go out closer to the coast. Well, once the state was settled, you know, those wetlands um, were drained, but also those that remained up along the lake, they weren't able to, to move like they did before when water levels rose or fall because of road development, land development, people build their house, they don't want one year to, to be dry and the next year to be be a wetland. So sure. the, the wetlands that remain are kind of sandwiched between Lake Erie and then that developed land. So a lot of them are protected by um, earthen berms and they don't allow they don't want the water exchange at will, which is what I talked about before as we learned about this. Now we have the ability to put these water control structures in that we can allow water to flow in at certain times of the year whenever we want it to allow the fish passage and things like that. So it's important to, I think, for people to keep that in mind that these wetlands have, are kind of protected now on all sides. So they're not able to move, and that's why it's important to be able to to control the water levels to maintain those wetlands. But we're working with a lot of um, landowners up along the lake and we have what we call flow through wetlands. So basically if you think of a wetlands as say a rectangle shape, at one end we would have a water control structure and at the other end we'd have a water control structure. And that way we let water, depending on water levels, we can let water flow in one end and let it flow out the other. So as it goes through that wetland, it's being, uh, as I mentioned, you know, sediments can fall out. The plants are absorbing nutrients. We can get that fish passage um, in there and uh, get them spawning habitat. And then there's other ones just by the way they're built. They only have a single point of connection. So there's only one water con control structure. And depending on how water levels change, um, on Lake Erie, whether they are rising or falling, again, we can let water into the wetland and then we can close that water control structure if we need to, to and we get the nutrient reduction benefits or we can let water flow in and out through that one structure and we still get the, uh, the nutrient reduction benefits as if it acts as a flow through system. So there's actually, there's probably about six to eight projects up along the lake with different landowners where where we're going to reconnect to uh, to Lake Erie or some of the tributaries so it's it's pretty exciting up there to, to use those currently established wetlands and uh, to use them to help with the nutrient reduction and also as I mentioned provide these uh, fish passage and fish spawning habitats that we haven't been able to in the past yeah so with the the flow through wetlands that you mentioned i would imagine if, if i'm sort of painting a mental picture correctly you would be able to control the flow on either end at different rates so you could let more say more water in than you're letting out so that it, it, maybe it, it 
keeps people's yards and stuff from flooding. It, it lets the water into the wetland and then you can kind of hold it there, slow it down there before it flows out the other end. Is that, am yes, I kind of envisioning this correctly? Yep, that's correct. You could, you could do that. Okay. Now are these, are these mechanical systems? Like somebody has to go out and adjust them or they, can they be controlled electronically or how, how do they work? Um, most of them are, are manual. Um, you go out and as I mentioned, you change those, those, what they call boards that you can set the water level, but okay. it's, it's not necessarily something you have to go out every day and do, um, you know, watching the weather and the winds and, and precipitation, you can go and set those boards and you may be able to leave them like that for, for months at a time. And you don't have to to really go back and constantly check them all the time. Okay, so maybe like more seasonally, as things kind of ebb and flow with the seasons. Right. So that th- that would be a good way to put it. Okay. So through all of this, you know, are should people expect to see expanded, um, you know, maybe waterfowl hunting opportunities or or um, expanded fishing opportunities? Like, will these areas be open to that kind of access or how's that going to work? Um, you know, right now, if it's a piece of property that we're going to acquire and it'll be in, in public ownership, then yes, but it's not, if the project's on private land, it doesn't necessarily mean you'll have access to it. Sure. But, you know, hopefully by creating more habitat, we'll have better reproduction, have more, they say, you know, waterfowls, they migrate through, they'll have more areas to go to. So that will hopefully increase hunting opportunities in the nearby area. Same with fishing. You know, we get some, those fish into the wetlands and spawning. Hopefully their populations will increase over time. So hopefully in the long run, it does increase opportunities for people, you know, to, to provide them some, some recreational opportunities. Definitely. Okay. Well, uh, Jeff, do you have any other questions for Scott before we uh, wrap it up? I think I've got most of the questions I had answered. No, I think that about covers all the questions I had. A lot of good information. Yeah. So, Scott, if, if is there anything kind of closing thoughts or any sort of last thoughts you want to leave the audience with? Or have we covered everything? Uh, we covered a lot. You know, I guess the one thing I would say, as I mentioned, you know, the go- if if you like to have clean water, the governor's going to need your support whenever he goes back to the legislature for the to get funding for the next two years of this program. So, you know, contact your local state legislators and tell them you support it. The other thing is, you know, we ha- we we didn't get in this situation in in a day. It's going to take some time. Uh, to, to improve the water quality, but, you know, we did it before. If you think back historically, back in the 70s and 80s, we had some water quality issues in Lake Erie then. Uh, we have the Clean Water Act that was passed. We were able to get the lake cleaned up, and, um, you know, unfortunately, we've kind of have a, a new situation there, but I think with everybody working together and with the support of the governor and the legislature, that you know we can we can overcome some of the issues that we have today and get get the lake back 
into good shape. It's, um, you know, it's Ohio's greatest natural resource. It's a big economic driver for the state, for tourism and things like that. So it's very important to the economy of the state. Uh, you know, we're the walleye capital of the world. We want to keep it that way. We've had some tremendous walleye hatches the last couple years, and we would hate to see, you know, something happen to those, uh, that opportunity, because we're probably looking at one to two decades of, of incredible fishing with the walleye population that we have right now, plus the yellow perch are doing pretty well. So we definitely want to maintain those populations in, in the lake. Definitely. Well, I think that's a great way to, to wrap it up. Scott, I want to thank you for, for taking time to come on and, and talk to us and talk to our audience. I, I really appreciate it. I've really enjoyed this conversation and I think our audience is going to get a lot out of it. So Thank My you. Thank you. And uh, we'll let you get back to your evening. I know this is probably outside of your normal uh, business hour, so so we do appreciate it. That is quite all right. My pleasure. Anytime. All right. Thanks. Take care. You too. Okay. So that's going to do it for this week. I want to thank Scott one more time for coming on and talking to us. Really appreciate that. Really appreciate him taking time and, and coming on the show. Like I said at the beginning, we really enjoyed this conversation. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Hopefully you got something out of it. And any and all show notes will be at our website, ohiohuntsman.com. And then you can just use the search function, search for H2Ohio, and it should bring up any and all content on the website about H2Ohio. So if you're looking for more information on that, that's a good way to find it. You can also go to h2.ohio.gov. That's, that's the website that they've put up for information and, and news on this initiative. So with that, I think that's all the announcements I have. So thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.